Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Setacase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode is a really, really special one. I sit down in person with Dr. David Gunkel, an emerging tech philosopher. We talk about robot rights, uh, one of his essays, Responsible Machines. We get into consciousness and whether consciousness is necessary for something to have rights. We go all over the place. We talk about dogs, of course. We have to talk about dogs. Um, if you guys like this podcast, if you like uh, in-person episodes like the one you're about to watch, then please consider becoming a Patreon patron. You can find the link in the description to support the podcast, to keep these lights on, to help with my travel expenses. You can also join uh, my YouTube members page. So you check that out if you're watching on YouTube. Just click join. And it'll give you a bunch of options and show you a bunch of uh, perks that you can get for joining my team there. Another way to support the podcast is to support me on GoFundMe. Right now, I'm doing a GoFundMe for my travel expenses to get down to Florida for MindFest. I've been invited by Dr. Susan Schneider, who's been on the podcast to talk about artificial intelligence. I've been invited by her to go down to the Center for the Future Mind, uh, their conference called MindFest. And there's going to be all sorts of philosophers of mind, AI researchers and theorists, uh, neuro, neuroscientists, all sorts of people talking about the mind. If you guys like this kind of stuff, you if you like in-person ones, consider uh, supporting me on GoFundMe, helping me get down there, paying for travel expenses, and then bringing back a lot of good content for you guys. Well, without further ado, though, let's get into the conversation with Dr. David Gunkel. All right. Well, I'm here with uh, Dr. Gunkel in his office here at NIU, and I'm really excited. Today, we're going to be talking about robots, robot ethics, uh, responsibility, all sorts of fun robot stuff. So I'm really excited for it. Uh, Dr. Gunkel, thanks so much for making some time for us here. Yeah, thanks for having me uh, come by. Yeah. Um, before we jump into like your specific work, uh, I just want to know, how did you get into philosophy and, and robots in the first place? Um, so this is kind of my plan B. Okay. Um, my plan A, my, my initial plan was to become an astronaut. And so I went to the Naval Academy and tried to Whoa. get myself in the uh, cockpit of the space shuttle. But uh, a little uh, medical problem uh, made wow. that uh, inaccessible to me. And I had to sort of reinvent my uh, career trajectory. And since I had a background in things science fiction related and, okay. you know, NASA oriented, uh, it just seemed... That uh, emerging technology and so the the big questions surrounding yeah. it were, uh, you know, sort of good territory to explore. Yeah. So what did you end up doing your dissertation on? I did my dissertation on Hegel, oh, <laughs> a nice. German philosopher of the 19th century. So okay. it's not uh, necessarily uh, very 21st century oriented, but yeah. uh, the exercise of doing that, I think, was important for totally. building my skills. That was at DePaul, right? Yeah, that was at DePaul. Okay, nice. And I, I didn't know this so recently. I'm, I'm studying to be... Well, uh, I'm studying analytic philosophy. I'm in the analytic tradition. And we had a philosophy of tech class last semester and just seeing Heidegger, 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 Heidegger. It's like a lot more on the continental side. I was really fascinated. I, I just want to be a philosopher, you know, so whoever, if, if it's Heidegger, if it's the analytics, I don't really care. But I was really fascinated to see how much Heidegger had influenced the philosophy of technology. Is that, does that sound right? Yeah, no, it's right. Um, okay. He wrote a really influential essay um, in the... Oh, right, right after the post-war period um, called The Question Concerning Technology. Right. And yeah. it's still one of the go-to essays for anybody who engages in the sort of larger philosophical questions of the impact of technology on human existence, on individuals, communities, you name it. Yeah. I had to learn so much new language, like his, uh, his stuff on like challenging forth versus bringing forth and standing in reserve. And once you get it, it's like, okay, it's starting to make sense. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, I had read in preparation for this, your paper, um, and I can't find the name of the paper right now, but, um, you talked about, uh, these different views of technology. You brought up the questioning, the question concerning technology and talked about the instrumental definition of tech. Correct. And then there's like the, the instrumental versus, uh, machine morality, different, different. Do you, do you remember what paper this yeah, is? Yeah, this is, um, this is a paper I wrote a while ago on how we're sorting a lot of these questions regarding responsibility yeah. with uh, advanced artificial intelligence and robotic systems. Yeah. And the instrumental theory has been around at least since Plato. Yeah. Um, Heidegger names it, right. but it's been operative well before that time. So it has at least a 2000 year plus history. It's pretty right? good, yeah. Um, and it's a good way of describing technology because it, it is this idea that technologies are tools. Mm-hmm. They're instruments that we use. If something goes well with the tool, it's our thing that made it go well. Yeah. If it goes poorly, we're the ones that are responsible. Um, I think we have that uh, very famous phrase, it's a poor carpenter who blames his tools, yeah, right? I saw that. Yeah, it's good. It's the carpenter and not the, the saw or the hammer that is the active agent. Yeah. And so that has worked extremely well for hand tools, for industrial processes, even yeah. for advanced electronics like the computer. Yeah. Where things get to be a little questionable, or at least we open up what are called responsibility gaps, is when we have devices that are able to make decisions, maybe not autonomously, but at least semi-autonomously, yeah. and contribute to what the outcomes are. And if that's the case, then this idea of instrumentalism starts to look a little less clear, and the yeah. transparency seen through the tool to the operator um, is muddied by the fact that the algorithm or the AI is introducing some complications in the decision-making process and the actions that are taken. Yeah, it's not just the hammer anymore. The hammer has been designed to do some other stuff, maybe on its own. Right. It's so, you know, we talk about learning algorithms now, and these yeah. are just systems that can, uh, by statistically processing and discovering patterns and data, um, develop their own course of action. Yeah. And when the algorithm develops its own course of action, sometimes the engineers look at the outcome and sort of scratch their head and say, <laughs> how did that happen? Right. Yeah. Um, this happened with the Go plane uh, AI called uh, AlphaGo. The engineers who built it didn't know how to play the game of Go. Um, yeah. They just knew how to set up a neural network, feed it some data, and then watch it beat Lee Sedol in a very famous... Uh, contest. So in those cases, the question then becomes, well, who's responsible right. for the outcome, whether it's good or bad? Yeah. Um, is it is it Responsible Machines? Is that the name of the paper? It probably is. Okay, yeah. nice. Okay. Yeah, I think you're right. So for everyone you know, back, back home, check that out. I'll drop a link uh, in the description to your website and they can go uh, read that as well. So there's this, uh, this instrumental view goes all the way back to Plato, but maybe named by uh, Heidegger. And then that's at odds with the machine morality view. Right. Where it's like, no, these machines are actually moral agents. Can you lay that one out for us? Yeah. So this is a innovation that was developed by Michael and Susan Anderson in around 2006, 2007. And they started to notice that a lot of the ways in which we were resolving or attempting to resolve some of these big questions about morality and responsibility with uh, AI was bumping heads against the instrumental theory. It wasn't quite being satisfactorily worked out. And so they introduced this idea of, of what they called machine ethics yeah. and uh, sort of proposed that we might need to, for lack of a better description, teach our machines to be ethical, <laughs> um, give them a sense of right and wrong so that when they do develop these kinds of decisions, those decisions are something we can count on yeah. as uh, you know being uh, ways of reinforcing our values and not challenging them. Yeah. Did, um, did they have in mind or have they interacted with like Asimov's three machine laws? Yeah, it's interesting you should ask because uh, Susan Anderson, who's the, so it's a, a, a husband and wife team. He's a computer scientist, AI uh, professional, and she's a uh, 
moral philosopher. Okay. And so they work together. It's nice. A good, good, yeah, uh, nice combination. There. Yeah. And um, she wrote a paper that tried to uh, really work through whether or not Asimov's three laws of robotics could be made computable, whether we could okay. write code yeah. that would then direct a computer or a, a robot to behave accordingly. Well, because he, he, famously used those three codes, uh, those three laws in order to build uh, good narratives yeah, and right. competing against each other. So yes. it might not be the right thing to use, but, but what did she find out? Was she able to So it was, it? it's interesting because you're exactly right. Uh, Asimov was not trying to be an engineer. He, right. he was not trying to give us a plan. He was looking for a way to create interesting stories. Yeah. And so he could find conflict in those laws, right? right? And make stories out of it. Uh, so Susan Anderson takes up this challenge to see whether this can be made computable, yeah. not because she thinks it can be, but because a lot of engineers who were geeky kids um, in their teenage years yeah. and read Asimov and were all excited about <laughs> it, thought that they had the solution and all we got to do is build it. Right. And so she wanted to test that that theorem yeah. or that theory. Yeah. And she found that they're not really computable. Okay. Um, they sound good, yeah. but to try to make a machine actually follow those rules is really not easily done. Do you, do you have those rules on top of your head for the audience? Um, let's see if I can remember correctly. Um, there is the rule, um, a, a robot may not cause harm to a human. Um, a robot needs to follow all instructions given to it by a human and a robot needs to preserve its uh, own existence. Yeah. And they're, they're like, they're waiting. hierarchical yeah. Yeah. so that the first one is the most important one. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's so good. So, um, what I love about sci-fi is that, uh, and you said this I, in one of your talks I was listening to, you said they're, they may not be, um, looking at the future, but looking at the present sci-fi authors, they're trying to understand what are we worried about? What are we nervous about? And we kind of project that into the future. And, um, I was, I was fascinated by this because we, we have some like self-driving car type stuff and you need to program in like, it, should I hit this squirrel or should I hit this kid? You know, like. Are those? I'm sure those are going on right now. But how do you? Do they? Do they bring in ethicists to help them figure out how to code in what to swerve and and risk your own passenger versus a, a pedestrian? Yeah. So this is a an important question, and it's interesting because initially the engineers thought, well, we can just figure this out by ourselves. Yeah. Come up with great solutions, and everyone's going to be happy with what we do. <laughs> Turns out people were not so happy. <laughs> they were a little concerned, a little worried, and as a result, there's a beginning to get some traction in the field of uh, AI, this idea that maybe we need to talk to the ethicists yeah. um, and find out what is right and wrong if we're going to design machines to be social and interactive and take uh, action in our world that has impacts on human beings. Yeah. So the field of AI ethics really develops out of that need. Yeah. But what the big tech companies do with this is kind of interesting mm. because in some cases they have hired people to come on board who either are out of uh, moral philosophy or law or some other uh, sort of background that is uh, able to sort of parse these questions and, yeah. and give uh, <clears throat> advice. But this has led to two problems. On the one hand, these ethicists who've been hired have often pushed back against some of the things the company has proposed uh. and have been very infamously fired. Wow. Um, as a result of it. And okay. uh, there's been a number of these instances in the past where uh, people have been very vocal about some technology that they were concerned about mm. and they were summarily dismissed by the organization for whom they worked. It's bad for the bottom line. It's bad for the bottom Let line. Let the philosophers in and they're going to philosophize. The other side of the coin is that uh, there is a worry that the hiring of people to do ethics at the level of the corporation is what we did with um, ethics with regards to environmentalism. So mm -hmm. just like we had greenwashing, where yeah. we tried to have co companies get out in front of regulation by saying, oh, don't worry about this. Yeah. We're, we're on it. We got ethicists about the environment <laughs> and we're going to be very good citizens right. and you can just leave us alone. They've done something similar, or at least there's a suspicion there's doing, they're doing something similar with ethics. They're mm -hmm. saying to governments, uh, you know, we've hired ethicists. We got good people. They can find all the problems before we commercialize a product. So don't regulate us. Yeah. And so we have this uh, concern now over ethics washing. Yeah. Well, that's really fascinating. And that's an ethical conundrum probably for the ethicists saying, am I going to be doing good here? Or am I just going to be like a useful idiot type of front for this company to? Yeah. So it's a, it's a really valuable question because the people I've talked to who have moved from the academy to working for industry or vice versa yeah. um, have varied stories about how well or 
poorly this goes. Yeah. Um, some companies obviously do these things better than others, but you know there are some pretty harrowing stories from people on the inside who thought they were going there to do some good and as a result find themselves without a job yeah. uh, because what they were proposing to the company uh, did have an uh, adverse impact on the bottom line. Yeah, and I'm sure they got NDAs and stuff in the front hand too. Correct. Yeah, that's tough. Um, well, so we have instrumentalism, machine ethics, machine morality, and then I believe you're you're proposing a middle way, or maybe you're just bringing it up, but you can clarify actor network theory. So there's so anytime you have extremes, like yeah. you have instrumentalism on the one hand, you yeah. have uh, machine morality or machine ethics on the other hand. The solution is well, what's the third way? What's what's yeah. the middle ground? Yeah. And the middle ground, um, at least now in the conversations about this, is that we need to have a more balanced perspective. Mm. Something that recognizes that the instrumental theory goes up to a certain point, but after that, we need to bring in some other factors and we need to be a little more flexible with the way that we assign accountability and responsibility in these relationships. Yeah. And this is a developing area in the current research in AI ethics. And there's a lot of people who think this middle way of doing things is probably going to work out best in terms of being practical and pragmatic. Yeah. And I'm sure as every field has, there are going to be some who are middle left, middle right, and you're going to figure Cor things correct. out. Correct. It, yeah. it, it's a spectrum. Yeah. And like any spectrum, it's not uh, easily parsed into an either or binary, but you have people through all the varying gradations from one extreme to the other extreme. Do you find, so do you find yourself in like the, the middle way that the actor network theory, do, would you say you're a proponent of that? Um, I find it to be probably the more persuasive way of thinking about a lot of these problems. Okay. Um, because I think one of the concerns people have is that really harsh instrumentalism um, limits us in our ability to really understand the social challenges that we face. Yeah. Um, machine ethics way on the other side of, this, of the extreme, if we go too far that direction, we might be giving away too much of human responsibility in the process. Yeah. And so this sort of tries to strike that balance. So I wonder how um, – I think I'm with you on that. I, I wonder how you would even go about holding a, a machine accountable. Um, and maybe that accountability is a totally different question. But it's, you have a self-driving car and I don't know. Maybe maybe you, you um, code in like a machine learning type program. So in, in a sense, the, there's some responsibility for the uh, inventor and the programmer. But also, it's kind of a little bit of a black box because it's machine right. learning. And how would you go about parsing that, I guess? So let me give you two examples. One is a good example where the outcome is beneficial. The other one is a bad example okay. where the outcome is not beneficial. Yeah. So the good example is AlphaGo. Yeah. So uh, DeepMind, which is a Google subsidiary, mm -hmm. uh, built this Go plane algorithm that was designed to play the game of Chinese checkers um, or chess, as called Go. Um, just to give you an idea of how complex that game is, it is estimated there are more moves in a single game of Go than there are atoms in the universe. <laughs> That's insane. That's a lot of variables <laughs> yeah. to manage. Yeah. And so the engineers who built AlphaGo created this uh, sort of hybrid architecture using some um, tree search uh, approaches that are sort of more good old-fashioned AI, but also a lot of learning um, and both reinforcement learning, but also unsupervised learning, oh, okay. where the algorithm could develop its own uh procedures for playing the game uh, through its ex experience in quotation marks yeah, right. of, uh, you know, parsing through the data. And as a result, this algorithm beat Lee Sedol of South Korea, who was considered one of the most celebrated players of the game. And when this contest took place, as soon as it was finished, people were asking the question, well, who do we credit with the win? Yeah. Who won? Yeah. Who actually beat Lee Sedol? So good. So if you ask the engineers, so you guys built this thing, you must be responsible for how good it is. And they're like, nah, we don't know how it does this. We just set it up yeah. and gave it data. And if you credit the algorithm, people are thinking, well, that's a little weird. Like we don't usually credit algorithms as <laughs> winners of games and right. other things. And so you saw a real ambivalence with regards to how we sort out that question. Yeah. And I don't think we have an answer just yet. I think it's more of a uh, you know, emerging area that we're trying to figure out and, and work out. Yeah. The bad example, around the same time, Microsoft created a chatbot called Tay. Hmm. And it was a basic chatbot that they put on Twitter and a few other 
social media platforms, but unlike other chatbots that were programmed in advance with all their behaviors intact, Tay was designed to evolve its conversational behaviors from interacting with human beings on the internet. This T-A-I? T-A-Y. T-A-Y. Yep. And you can bet interacting with human beings on the internet is going to produce exactly what you think it would produce. (laughs) So in the first six to eight hours of being online, the algorithm was identified by a number of human users as a machine learning algorithm, and they started firing all sorts of racist and sexist (sighs) comments at the bot. Man. The bot became a raving neo-Nazi racist in about six hours. Yikes. And the only solution Microsoft had was to pull the plug and, you know, disconnect the bot from... um, user access on the Because it was already so far downstream, you couldn't go back and... There was no way to reverse engineer it. Wow. It already had built the the neural pathways and its neural network that created these outcomes, right? Now, as soon as that happened, someone said, well, okay, who's responsible for the hate speech? I mean, this is absolutely horrendous. Yeah. Uh, Someone needs to be held accountable for this bot doing this terrible behavior on the internet. And who do we hold responsible? The initial sort of knee-jerk reaction of the people at Microsoft was to blame the victim. They said, oh, it's not our fault. It's your fault. You taught the bot. Hmm. You being this small group of users. But, you know, they turned it around and said, you know, it's not our problem. It's your problem on the internet. You you guys did this. Uh, About two days later, Peter Lee, who's the Microsoft uh, VP for research, uh, was a little more contrite, but not quite. Hmm. Um, He wrote a blog post that said, we're sorry for the unanticipated outcome. Yeah. But he never took responsibility for the outcome. Yeah. And so, again, it was left sort of hanging yeah. whether Tay could be responsible for the hate speech, mm. whether Microsoft should be held accountable for this hate speech. Um, but you can bet eventually lawyers are going to get involved in these things, especially when uh, there are harms that can be demonstrated against uh, other human persons. Yeah. And so that, I think, is where this is going to be sorted out. I think that's so fascinating, too, because um, I love philosophy of mind type stuff. And sometimes people are like, you know, it's, it's so airy-fairy. It's, you know, qualia type stuff. But it, it has all these implications uh, in the court because we're, we're doing artificial intelligence type stuff. And it would be really nice to know, is this a, a moral agent? Does it have moral status? Because then that would be much more easy to assign blame if you think that this is a conscious being. If right. not, it, if, if, especially if you have an instrumental view, it's like how could a hammer – you know, guns don't kill people. Uh, people kill people, Correct. right? And and that's kind of a debate back and forth in, in the philosophy of science or um, uh, tech. So what do you think? You you um, you have this nice picture on your website, uh, Robot Rights Now, I think. Yeah. Um, do you think that, that robots should have rights or do you think they ever will have rights? So this, this question, again, is something that I've written a lot about. Um, it, it's funny because I... I originally wrote one book on this subject back in 2012 called The Machine Question. Mm-hmm. And I wrote it thinking that, well, I'll just get this book out of my system. It, it's, <laughs> it's, it's in my head and yeah. I get these ideas and it'll, it'll be a one-off. I'll just get the book done and, and move on to something else. And it turned out that this question, should robots have rights, had far more traction than I ever anticipated. Yeah. Um, as soon as that book came out, People wanted to talk about it. People mm. wanted more and more and more. So now I've written my third book that is really turning all this into a trilogy. Yeah. Um, not planned, <laughs> but just <laughs> a result of it's one of those projects that has a life of its own. And yeah. I serve you're, it. You're like the chatbot and the public is going back to you saying we want more Yeah, more, right. More, exactly. More. Yeah, it's not your fault. So the question of robot rights I think is is crucial because we need to look at what we're talking about when we say the word rights. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes when we hear the the word rights, we're thinking human rights. And then we're immediately asking, well, should robots have human rights? Hmm. And I think that's really going too far. I think a lot of moral panic occurs when we ask that question. (laughs) I think we got to be really specific. What do we mean by rights? Well, rights are powers, privileges, claims, and immunities. They're different ways in which we resolve social conflict. So you can think, for example, of a pedestrian in a crosswalk. They have certain rights against the automobile and the person in the automobile. Otherwise, we'd just be hitting people in crosswalks all over the place, right? We call it the right of way, right? But it's it's a claim or it's a privilege that the pedestrian has against the motor vehicle. And so that's the kind of stuff we got to look at when we talk about rights. We need to be very specific. We need to know exactly what claim or power or privilege or immunity we're talking about and who it's binding on, who, who, you know, 
who has a duty to respect that right. And you can see over time that we have expanded the uh, criteria for who can and who cannot have rights. At one point, uh, it was questionable whether women had, say, the right to vote. We altered that, obviously, realized that was a very poor decision. We've questioned even should animals have rights. Mm -hmm. So this question about robots having rights is just an evolutionary stage as we again, question our limits and our boundaries with regards to both our moral reasoning and our legal reasoning. Mm. And that brings up another important distinction. There's a, dis- a difference, again, between moral rights and legal rights. Right. Moral rights are those rights that are supposedly God-given. Mm-hmm. And there are things like equity and all men are created equal, although when you say all men are created equal, you've obviously excluded women, right? Yeah. So all people are created equal, yeah. these sorts of things, right? Um, legal rights are much more about sort of uh, socially agreed upon um, status mm-hmm. and protections. And it is something that varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Uh, different places can have the same legal right, like the right to free speech, but it is done differently in Singapore than it is done in the United States. Right. It's done differently in Germany than it is in Russia, right? Um, even though they may share the value. Um, the, the legal right is a little bit different. Is that because it's a different concept or can it be the same concept just applied in different ways? It can be either of those. Okay. But it, it off, in the case of free speech, it often is the same concept applied differently or um, at least uh, executed differently gotcha. b- because of the jurisdiction in which it is deployed. Like in Germany, I, I think there's there's certain laws about like not uh, doing like a Nazi salute or, or, yes. or things like that. Where Correct. It's like, well, still free speech, but maybe that has implications for uh, um, violence or something like Correct. that. Okay. So when we say robot rights, I think we need to be very clear. We're not talking about giving human rights to robots. Okay. Robots will probably never have human rights. Only human beings can have human rights. That's what they're called human rights. <laughs> yeah. Robots are going to have another set of rights, which would be called robot rights. Hmm. And they may be very minimal kinds of protections, uh, that are seemingly very, uh, insignificant compared to what we recognize as human rights. So we're not going to give robots the right to vote, but we might give robots the right to not be hit in a crosswalk. And in fact, that's actually happened. In 12 jurisdictions Mm. in the United States right now, there are laws in the books that say that a robot in a crosswalk shall have all the rights and responsibilities of a human pedestrian. Wow. So is that that because... um, I could see protections going different ways. It, It could be because it's someone's property... And so it falls under Correct. a human being's property rights or like a unique thing grounded in something about the robot. Yeah. And I would say it's going to be a long time before we see a real credible reason for giving robots rights based on their inherent dignity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think it's going to be more about us. It's going to be more about us figuring out what are the social challenges that we have to deal with when robots are in our world and interacting with us on the street, in the home, at work, and how are we going to sort out these kinds of competing claims? Yeah. So um, when it comes to thinking through robot rights, um, okay, so I believe that either the Amazon River or the Amazon Rainforest has like human rights. Well, it doesn't have human rights. So there are a number of um, environmental laws that have been passed recently Uh, For example, the uh, Constitution in Ecuador gives the entire ecosystem of Ecuador the rights of a person. There's a river in New Zealand that has the rights of a person. And most of these innovations come out of corporate law Mm -hmm. um, using the corporations are persons uh, approach. And it's used rather ingeniously by indigenous uh, communities to try to take back their land, their river, their rivers, their waterways yeah. uh, from corporations yeah. who, through colonialism, were able to appropriate uh, this property. Fascinating. Uh, but we've got to remember in law in particular, person is not necessarily human being. Ah, in okay. sort of natural, like the, the notion of natural personhood often is equated to a human being in the sort of metaphysical terms of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in terms of legal status, who has rights and who doesn't have rights, Person is a legal category 
And the word person comes from persona, which means mask. Mm -hmm. And it has to do with the role something plays in our social reality. And because corporations play a role in our social reality where they impact us and we would like to sue them or uh, protect them from suit, we give them the status of person uh, in our laws. And so we've seen this now extended to animals. We've seen it extended to natural objects and uh, elements of the environment. And it seems rather reasonable that you could extend the same recognitions to an AI or robot to have them recognized as legal persons for the purpose of deciding, I don't know, patents or copyright or other kinds of legal disputes. It's so fascinating. Yeah, because person seems like it might be like like a natural kind or something like that. But yeah, in law, it's different. Uh, Jennifer Lackey came on the podcast. She's an epistemologist and she she does she's doing work on like group agency. Uh, and it's a similar type thing where uh, the corporation might all the uh, constituent persons of the corporation might be able to pass blame to the corporation, sue the corporation, but not me. And uh, similarly, there's the same debate of like, are we, are we going to be inflationary and say that the entity, this is an entity, it is a person, or are we going to pass all the blame down to the constituents? And then there's the middle way, people who say kind of both too. Right. So it's really fascinating. It follows over. Um, I wonder if you, so you make this river a person or you don't make, you make it a legal person. It'd be silly to say like the river drowned some person. Correct. Right? Like, so, yeah. So yeah. In, in the case of the natural environment, most of these laws are passed in order to protect the environment from exploitation. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it's more about the rights than it is the responsibilities. Interesting. Okay. So rights, you can have rights without responsibilities. Yeah. You can, these things so can be separated. Yeah. So you can think, for example, in animal rights, uh, we might give a dog a right not to be uh, abused or tortured. Yeah. But if the dog bites the postman, we're not going to hold it morally culpable for don't attacking put, the postman. Don't we have to put him down there? Isn't that, uh... we, so we hold the owner responsible in that case. Okay. So, so why would we put the dog down? It has to do with destroying the property because dogs are considered property mm-hmm. legally Okay. Um, as a way of resolving the dispute. Okay. That's – I feel like most people don't think about it that way. That's like the legal way of doing it. That's Correct. what's legally no, no. happening. Most, most people, people are like, most people think of, kill that dog because yeah, he's a bad but, dog. I mean even, even in the case of dogs that we like, um, you, you know, the dog is really a good example of how things change over time. Yeah. For, you know – most of human history, dogs were considered a tool, yeah. an instrument for hunting, for right. herding, for doing work. Yeah. And we treated them as property, not persons. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the distinction person versus property is, again, a very old binary distinction going back to the institutes of a Roman jurist named Gaius, who yeah. said there yeah. are two um, two elements in the law. We have persons and things, yeah. persons and property. So dogs were always on the side of things. They were They were property. And my grandfather, who raised dogs for hunting, um, would do with a dog that wouldn't hunt exactly what he would do with a broken refrigerator. Yeah. Get rid of it. Yeah. Um, in the case of getting rid of it, in his case, it'd be taking it out back and shooting it. And it was humane. It was humane. Yeah, it, was, right. it was considered like the right thing to do. Right. It's a broken tool. Yeah. You throw a broken tool away. What, what kind of dogs, by the way? Uh, German short hair pointers. Awesome. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah. Just the same dog I have now. Oh, awesome. Um, but clearly... That seems for, you know, the position where we're at right now to be a rather cruel and inhumane treatment of the animal. Right. And in fact, today, dogs have sort of migrated from being just property to being a kind of in-between zone between person and property. And, and literally, they migrated from the outside where they'd be on a chain into our homes, into Correct. our beds, onto our couches. Exactly. Yeah. And so now, for example, you don't buy a dog like other pieces of property. You adopt a dog. Oh, that's right. And if you adopt a dog, people come to your house to check you out to make sure you're going to be what they call a good pet parent. Yeah. And so the dog in a very short period of time has moved from pure property to a kind of quasi-person of sorts. And the dog's DNA hasn't changed. The dog's capabilities hasn't evolved in that short period of time. What's changed? We have. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, okay, so a dog, um, presumably there's something that it's like to be a dog, like they're, they're, they're conscious beings. Uh, and so um, I, I could see someone making the argument that, um, hey, now we're, the social conscious, conscious, the social conscience 
is coming around to recognizing what's already been there because the dog hasn't changed, but it's been a conscious, maybe non-human person. And now finally we're recognizing it where that might be a significant difference between, you know, a, a, a dog and a robot. Um, does it matter? Does, does consciousness matter? Like, should it matter, I guess, for us considering robots and robot rights? So it's a really good question. And I think a lot of people think this should be the pivot. This should be the tipping point. Mm -hmm. Like when the robot is able to be conscious, when we can discern phenomenal consciousness in the robot, well, then we can do the rights business and we can solve all these problems. And then everything is very easy. Mm -hmm. The difficulty is with the concept of consciousness. Um, There is a problem, I think, with the definition of the term, with the determination of which part of consciousness is the most important part of consciousness, and then with the detection. So let's start with determination. What is necessary for something to be considered conscious? Is it sentience? Is it sapience? Is it intelligence? You know, where is that line? And and how do we discern in those very sort of blurry boundaries um, where we will determine that consciousness has been reached? You can see already how in a lot of the things that we've done in AI, we often work with moving goalposts. Uh, It used to be we thought once computers could play chess, we had AGI and it was game over. Well, as soon as Gary Kasparov had his ass handed to him by (laughs) uh, Deep Blue, Blue. um, did we announce the uh, advent of AI? No. We said it's it's just another computer program. It's called the AI effect. As Mm. soon as something is working, then it's no longer AI. And we we move the goalpost. I think we do the same with consciousness. We, we draw the line in the sand. We say consciousness is this. And then, oh, okay, so now the animals can do that. Okay, now now consciousness is this. Uh, yeah, and we right. keep backing it up to sort of protect human <clears throat> exceptionalism in many cases. Yeah. There's another problem, I think, with definition. If you look at how people define consciousness, you'll find as many different definitions as there are people defining it. Right. And if there's any agreement among philosophers, neuroscientists, roboticists, AI engineers, psychologists, it's that there is no well-defined univocal definition of consciousness. <laughs> yeah. And that means, again, it's slippery. Mm-hmm. And it allows for some ambivalence with the way that we sort these things out. And if you're going to base moral status on something that is that ambivalent, it's a little complicated because that's where the errors occur Yeah, in, in that de- uh, definition and determination. That's so tough. Well, what if what if we just went with something like Nagel's "What It's Like" and and we use like uh, I don't know, conceiv- I guess it's conceivability, like putting yourself in that position. And can can I imagine that there'd be something it's like to be this? Thing? Yeah. So the paper that Nagel wrote, "What's Like to Be a Bat," is often utilized here. Yeah. But it also I think exhibits the major uh, difficulty, and that's the third item I was going to mention, which is detection. <laughs> yeah. So if there is that going on inside another thing, yeah. if there is something it is like to be a bat, how do we access that? Yeah, right. How do we exp- – like we, we can maybe Im- think we can imagine, but can we ever really know what it's like to be another anything? And that was actually one of Nagel's points is like there's something – his point was there's something irreducible to consciousness and such that you can't really Correct. imagine what it would be like. So even in the paper that people use – it's still saying like, well, I don't know. Yeah. I just and don't so, know. So, you, you know, everyone who has done the basic philosophy class knows this is the problem of other minds. Yeah. It's a problem that Descartes has mm-hmm. um, where he can't discern whether people are really people or automatons, right? Yeah. Um, but it is a persistent problem. Now, yeah. it's not intractable. I mean, you can, you know, probably guess and imagine, but it is enough to see doubt yeah. about the inner world of the other. Yeah. Um, uh, for the listener, uh, Dr. Susan Schneider came on and she's got some consciousness tests kind of based on Philip K. Dick type stuff, which is really fascinating about possible ways to, uh, while you're programming the AI, kind of bake in some tests that might help you. And whether or not those are successful, it's super hard to tell. Like, it's the problem of other minds. It is. Um, so that's that's super fascinating. I, I wonder about, um, we're, we're talking definitions. Definitions are really hard. When we talk about something being like an autonomous piece of tech, um, are we speaking like metaphorically or, or is this thing actually able to be autonomous? Can you be autonomous without consciousness? Yeah. So this, this is cool because it turns out <coughs> that autonomy is one of those things that we think is, again, a deciding factor. Yeah. When something is self-moving and self-deciding and it's autonomous, then, oh, yeah, now we got to start to think of it as another entity that's important yeah. to us. It seems like a life, right? It, seems, it, it yeah. seems like it's alive. It has yeah. animacy, whatever. Yeah. Um, but again, in sort of 
real world social reality experience, this doesn't quite do the work we think it should be doing. Yeah. So I'll give you another example where things get sort of crazy or interesting. Um, there are these robots that are used by soldiers called explosive ordnance disposal robots. Yeah. And they are not very cute. They're not designed to be social. They don't have eyes. They don't have faces. They're just little tank-like robots with a huge arm that reaches out and grabs a bomb and defuses it before the rest of the unit is in harm's way. Yeah. Turns out that the soldiers that work with these robots give them names. Oh, no. They award them battlefield promotions and medals for valor in in the line of duty. Um, And when one of the robots is harmed, they often request that that robot be fixed and sent back because that's their Scooby-Doo or whatever. Now, these are not kids. These are not naive people. These are soldiers. They're getting a job done. (laughs) They're very pragmatic, very rational thinking human individuals. And yet the social presence of the robot and the work it does alongside them leads them to invest in it as if it was another team member and not just a tool of combat. Yeah. And as a result, we've got to be, I think, sensitive to the fact that we're human and we do this. And we can't just tell people, stop anthropomorphizing, stop doing this. <laughs> it's what makes us social. It's not a bug. It's yeah. a it's a feature. feature yeah. But we've got to learn how to manage the feature. And yeah. I think that's something that we're only now realizing is crucial for integrating these devices into our social reality. Yeah. Oh, so that's fascinating. Um, Lex Friedman is... Uh super famous, you know, podcaster and stuff like that. He he did this experiment where he brought a bunch of Roombas into his home and he programmed them to say ouch when they jump when they bump into stuff. <laughs> yeah. And it really messed with them. And he's, he had to like stop the thing because it they keep saying ouch. I wonder, you know, if that is like hacking into uh, something built into us that's for good so we recognize uh agency and in little infants or something. Is there I don't want to like mess with our DNA or anything, but that's that seems like too far. The soldiers seem like that that seems good, but being um, f- having feelings for a Roomba that you know you just programmed. There's nothing. It's like so that seems like too far. What do we do with that? So I think probably one way to account for it is that we're really early on in the process of uh, dealing with these things in our social true. world, right? Yeah. And over time, we may develop better sensitivity yeah. to the range of differences that are presented to us. But I do think we need to be careful in the process to respect our values and and to know that, you know, if these things like the robot or the Roomba bumping around and saying, ouch, is going to happen, then maybe don't program the Roomba to say, ouch, (laughs) right? right. Um, There there may be ways that we can be a little attentive to the mechanisms of this. That's why I say, I think it's really about not stopping anthropomorphism, but managing it effectively. Yeah, that's good. So um, something that really freaks me out lately is uh, like autonomous weapons. And oh, yeah. I heard that, you know, China said they're going to start using it. And from what I hear, I'm, I, I'm not super in the loop, but the, the states have said we're going to do that as well. Do you think um, you think it'd be more dangerous? So let's just say that you could make uh, AGI. Would it be more dangerous to have AGI uh, weapons or uh, autonomous dumb weapons? Yeah, I think it's the latter. I think, you know, autonomous, semi-smart, but not really smart weapons (laughs) can do a whole lot of really stupid damage. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the science fiction scenario of the AGI uh, armed to the teeth uh, frightens me less because I I think, one, it's more speculative and it's not much of what I think I will expect to encounter in my lifetime. Okay. Uh, But I do know that these weapons are being developed. And they are being developed on platforms that are, you know, in some cases, uh, questionable with regards to their intelligence or not. And as we can see with other weapon systems that have been rolled out, um, these things do lead to mistakes and and do lead to bad outcomes that are not necessarily controllable. Yeah. When when it comes to, uh, so so on AGI, do you think think it's plausible that... um, so again, the conscious question is is all over the place. Do you think one, I guess, uh, AGI is is plausible and and something that that could happen in our lifetimes? And then two, do you think there will ever be something that it's like to be a non-human, you know, robot? Yeah. So yeah, this is another really important and very uh, con- contended question. You yeah. can see <laughs> on social media people arguing about AGI all over the place, yeah. right? Uh, is it a waste of time to talk about it? Is it likely? Is it viable? Whatever. Yeah. 
I think there's a way to step back from that entire debate okay. and ask what it is that we expect AGI to be and what that means for us. Yeah. So I think the way that we define AGI, at least in terms of our science fact and not our science fiction, mm-hmm. is that AGI would be a AI that is able to emulate the general thinking capabilities of a human being. Yeah. And that's where I think we go wrong. I think building a machine to emulate human thought process, which has been a goal in artificial intelligence, really from the Dartmouth conference. Yeah. I think that probably is impossible. Okay. We can already make other things like ourselves that think like us. We call them children. (laughs) So there's ways that we can reproduce human intelligence already. Right. I think the real value of artificial intelligence and the real uh, impact it's going to have is not that it's artificial human-like intelligence, Mm -hmm. but rather it's alien intelligence. Mm. We're creating a new kind of intelligence that can do things we can't do. Yeah. So I think the way that I want to look at the AGI question is not whether or not AGI is going to happen or not happen. I think probably the goal that we have there is already somewhat inflated and uh, rather improbable. But I think we are creating alien intelligence. Okay. And these alien intelligences are already here and they'll just get more capable. uh, But they will do things that are different. Yeah. And I think that's important for us. Yeah. Do you think that the the project is uh, like wedded to – like machine functionalist theory of mind, or can we get? Often it is. Okay. Yeah, it often is. Um, I think you know one of the arguments is is we are a physical system, and so if we just change the substrate of the physical system, right. if we get the AI to do exactly what we do, then it's a mind. Yeah, and multiple right? realizability, and boom, Correct. they're off to the the races. the The scary thing about um, AGI. So, so you, you made a really good point about. Um, about the goals of AI, and some some folks in the in the literature and in the conversation, some of them speak as if we're like we're making gods, right? And, and yeah. some of them want a moral arbiter to say like, "Hey, help us figure this stuff out." Now we have this that freaks me out because uh, machine learning type stuff, black box, it's like inscrutable. Their their reasoning processes might be inscrutable to us. What like you, you got King Solomon who says, uh, "Hey, let's cut this baby in half." And he showed this wisdom to to pick out the the right mother in in the biblical uh, literature. In this one, it's it's like cut the baby in half, and the AI might actually do it, and it it can see down the line, and it saved you know it saved us from World War Three. Mm-hmm. And you're like, why did you do that? What what the heck? But it's inscrutable because it's so beyond us, or because it's a black box, or because it thinks differently. Is it does it freak you out at all that it would think so differently than us? Um. No, because I think the realm in which it thinks differently is a realm that is not necessarily where we operate. So in yeah. terms of some of the things that AI is able to do um, currently, where I think the alien intelligence is very useful, uh, NASA gathers all this data from its telescopes. Yeah. And the AI is able to parse through that data and find and discover patterns in that data that may be significant, mm-hmm. that no human being could ever handle yeah. because it's just too much data to process. Yeah. Um, same with detecting cancers. Um, some AIs are much better at oh, detecting yeah. the occurrence of cancer in various diagnostic tools. Yeah. So I think we're, we're looking at a situation where whenever we're dealing with um, beyond human capabilities, the AI may actually fill the gap and may actually... Uh, augment yeah. our intelligence as opposed to replacing it as we are often yeah. uh, worried. The augmentation, yeah, that sounds great. The The idea that it makes a chess move and you don't know why it did, you see that it's a good one, but you don't know why, that one freaks me out a little bit. So what's interesting is that as a result of AlphaGo winning at the game of Go, many human players of the game of Go are now using the algorithm's plays to help them right. retrain their own way of playing right. the game. Yeah. And so there's a way in which even if the algorithm won against Lee Sedol, it is also producing new human yeah. um, capabilities Everyone's and skill. Everyone's better because Everyone's of better because yeah. of it. And everyone is learning new strategies. There yeah. was one move in one of the games that was so supposedly bad that people thought the algorithm made, made a mistake. Hmm. Like it, it put one of the pieces in a, in a location and all the human commentators uh, on it as they were watching the game were saying, Oh, that looks like a mistake. That looks like a really yeah. bad move. Turned out to be the pivotal move that got <laughs> the algorithm the game. Yeah. And it's because no one has ever made that move before. Yeah. No one has ever tried that. Yeah. 
That's so fascinating. Well, uh, we're, we're running out of time here, but I wanted to leave the audience with uh, a final question. Uh, are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Somewhere in between about, uh, about AI and robot rights and, and everything we discussed here. Going forward, looking at emerging tech, how, how are you feeling? So I'm optimistic that we together... And when I say together, I don't mean just Europeans and Americans and, <laughs> you know, the Europeans, Americans and Chinese, but everyone, globally yeah. speaking, okay. um, are confronting ourselves with some new opportunities and some new challenges. And yeah. like previous ones, I think we will rise to the occasion and, and we will figure things out. It's not going to be easy. Yeah. It's going to be rocky and there's going to be fits and starts. But I generally am optimistic that, you know, we are intelligent enough ourselves to recognize what we value yeah. and to assert those values in a way that respect us yeah. and that get the best results for the humankind. Yeah. Man, I really hope so. Um, you you said you like uh, science fiction. Are you, are you a Philip K. Dick fan at all? Oh, you, yeah. Okay. So he's got this essay or this uh, short story, The Third Variety, about oh, yeah, right. autonomous uh, robots. And uh, they end up killing everyone and they go to the moon colony and they're going to go kill them. But the robots start turning on each other. And Philip K. Dick, through his mouthpiece, the last human being, said they, they smirked because at least the robots are killing each other now, too. And it was like this super dark, like Philip K. Dick classic thing. So like, so I'm glad you're optimistic and leaving us with that. I got uh, Do Android Dream of Electric Sheep. I'm a big Philip K. Dick head. Um, so I, I'll leave you guys with a little bit of pessimism from Philip K. Dick and then some optimism from uh, Dr. David Gunkel. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's fun. Where, where can people find your work? Uh, they can find my work on the internet, obviously, at yeah. gunkleweb.com. Awesome. All right, folks, go check that out. You can find the link in the description wherever you're at. If you guys like this episode, leave me a like, a comment. Let me know your thoughts. And uh, please go check out Dr. Gunkel's work. Hey, guys, if you like that episode, please leave me a like and drop a comment. If you don't know what to comment, just drop a, a little robot emoji down in the comments. That would be huge. And uh, I want to know your thoughts. Like, do you think that robots should have their own type of rights? Should they have human rights? If they're conscious beings like us, ought we give them human rights? And should we even go about making those type of AGI things anyways? Uh, again, folks, if you like the in-person episodes, then check out my GoFundMe link in the description and help me get down to Florida for MindFest so I can come back to you with a bunch of uh, emerging tech in-person podcast episodes, cutting edge of philosophy of mind, uh, AI research, AI theory, neuroscience, all sorts of good stuff. So consider um, doing that. You can find the link in the description and you can find the full program list for MindFest 2023. Awesome.